0: A lot of journalists, they'll go, oh, I don't want too detailed of notes because it takes me out of the moment. And I go, well, that just means you're a freaking amateur. You know, if you can't take your notes and put them aside and just think about what's in there, that's a you problem. The notes aren't actually distracting you. You're just distracted by the notes because you can't operate without
1: them. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mindvalley podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work I have an incredible guest that is returning to the show today, none other than Jordan Harbinger. Now, if you've been listening to podcasts, you would definitely be familiar with his Jordan Harbinger show. It is one of the best interview podcast series available where he talks with incredible guests from around the world, and he is one of the most powerful networkers who has come on the show and teach his methods on how to be better at networking. It was one of my favorite episodes to speak about. It is a skill that I think is one of the most important ones to have in the world today. And so if you haven't listened to that one yet, you'll definitely want to go back and check it out. As for today, I really wanted to bring Jordan back for an important conversation around something that I've been getting a lot of messages about. I mean, I love all of you listeners, and some of you have even written to me saying, Jason, I've been enjoyed some of your interviews. I love the way you ask questions to some of your guests. I'd love to learn more skills on how to be a better interviewer myself. Now, I want to make a caveat here of saying you don't need to be someone who professionally runs a podcast. You don't need to have your own radio show. You don't need to be doing interviews for a living to actually realize that there's some important skills you can learn when it comes to having conversations with people, asking the right questions to really help you within your career and within your personal life. But I really wanted to bring Jordan on the show back here to be able to share some of the things that he consciously is competent about, how he does his interviews, how he prepares for them, why it's important, and what is it the result that happens when you have these great interviews. It allows you to connect with people. It allows you to build new connections. And I really, really look up to this man to be able to share some more insights because sometimes I don't know what are the things that I do, and I always want to improve myself as an interviewer as well. So it's with my great pleasure that I bring Jordan Harbinger back to the show. Jordan, welcome back.
0: Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it.
1: Now, of course, I spoke about, you know, how amazing your podcast is. And I also want to talk about the fact that Forbes, uh, I think it was Inc. Magazine, named you the Larry King of podcasting. Now, late Larry King, you know, bless his soul, has been one of the best interviewers in the business. In your case, are you someone that actually had always studied interviewing? Like when you started interviewing people, is this something that you prepared for? Is it something you just started? Like what got you into the space of being great at interviewing?
0: You know, I started doing the show... My first show, is like 14 years ago now, more than. So I was doing the show. I was not interviewing anyone. I was like teaching into a microphone essentially and outlining everything. And I had a co-host and he never helped prep anything. So I started to get kind of sick of that. And I was like, all right, well, if I'm gonna just do this, I don't need a co-host. And then he started to sort of be like, oh, is it tomorrow? Ah, uh, no. And I would be like, oh no, we have to do something. So I'd go and get a guest and I'd be like, can you pinch hit? My co-host just flaked. And so I would get somebody to do a conversation with me and I was like, oh, this is kind of fun because I'm sort of interviewing them, but it's really just conversational. It's not as hard as I thought. And then I started to really enjoy that. And people would go, oh, get this other person, get this other person, get this other person. And while my co-host didn't like interviewing, cause he kind of like just wanted to horse around in the mic. I was like, oh, there's better content. We don't necessarily have to think of all of it ourselves. We get another perspective And it's fun. So I started working on that. And over time, I really focused a lot on bringing out the best in the guest in terms of like reading their book. This isn't something I started doing right away. This is like, took me years to realize this. But now I I read their book. I go through their positive and negative reviews. You know, I go over a lot of the different practical elements, I guess you would say, that I find in their work. And I do that because most of the time, journalists don't actually prep that well. I'm trying to be sort of diplomatic here, but they don't read the book, right? They don't read the book. They're often, if it's a radio journalist or like a regular writer, their editor might be like, "Uh, yeah, you're covering this. And they're like, ugh, so stupid. You know, they don't care. So they just sort of mail it in. It's like part of their beat. I get to pick who I interview, which is, I didn't realize this, but you work for like freaking decade as a journalist before you get to be like, I'm gonna do this. You know, you spend years getting assigned things by an editor or an associate editor or another writer. And like, you kinda sometimes get to pick what you're doing, but most of the time, if you work for a newspaper or a TV channel, you do not get to do that. So I sort of started off being able to do that. And I was like, this is really cool and fun. Why don't journalists prepare better? And now I know it's because the half of the time they don't have time, and the rest of the time they're not interested. So I started to go really deep on this. And I was like, the best journalists, the ones that are really good at this, they know a lot about a specific field or niche. They read everything in that space. They know all the people in that space, you know, and you hear people like Kara Swisher, who's like a super awesome tech journalist. She'll be like, yeah, Tim Cook texted me last night at four o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I'm like, wow, that's this person's like super, super well connected. And I thought I can sort of do that, but in both one foot in the personal development space, one foot in the psychology space, I guess I'm a millipede because I have a lot of feet, another foot in you know, the kind of business space, whatever you want to call it. So that to me started to become an area of interest or multiple areas of interest. And that honestly became kind of a strength because I might never be the most well connected business journalist, because what does that even mean? But I didn't want to be a self-development guru or whatever, but I also didn't want to just be a podcast person. So now I realize I can be like in the top 10% of those fields, but if you're in the top 10% of like three fields, you remember Venn diagrams from school. So you have like this circle and it overlaps and there's like a little tiny overlap. I better close that circle. There's a little tiny overlap in the middle. Well, if you have three of those, that area of overlap is even smaller. And then if you have like five of them, the area of overlap is even smaller. So if you have podcasting as the medium. And then you put like business as one of the niches and like tech or personal development is one of the niches. And then like personal growth, which is sort of different in one of the niches. And then you've got like psychology as then overlap. That area of overlap is pretty small. And so there's maybe like a handful of people in there and great. Some of them started this year, last year, four years ago, but like I started 14 years ago. So I have a lot of experience, a lot of audience. So basically I've managed to sort of carve out this niche that's highly valuable in that space. So you start to realize that the combination of prep and skill, plus this narrow focus becomes kind of like a laser, right? High energy, I guess you'd say like prep skill. And then the area is really focused and small. And that's sort of the laser beam metaphor, right? Like you're really in there. I notice a lot of people who start podcasts, they do things like I'm going to interview business people. Cool. You're such a commodity though, have fun. It's a hobby, but like you are officially one of thousands, one of hundreds of thousands, probably literally. And that's just in the podcast space. Forget like all the people who write and all these other things. So you're really not going to ever outshine even the top 30% of those people over a, your whole career, probably.
1: I actually want to jump in here because yeah. first off, you're hinting towards something that's happened, you know, mostly in the last one or two years, as you've mentioned, which is there's been an explosion of people launching their own podcasts. And I've done a past episode that taught people how to get started and to get started in podcasting is quite easy, much less barriers. than I'm sure there were existing for you 14 years ago. That must have been a completely different process. And so from what I'm getting here is you're saying, first off, if you're going to be doing any kind of interviews, you need to start being more clear, more laser focused on exactly the kind of interviews you want to do to not be like everybody else. And combining different interests and skill sets makes you more precise like that Venn diagram. Is that what we're starting with?
0: Yeah, I would say focus on a narrow niche. I mean, that's sort of like the cool bumper sticker like the riches are in the niches, right? It's like you got to focus on something. I mean, think about if you are opening up a yoga studio in California, you might get some customers cuz there's a lot of people interested in yoga, but like what's interesting about this, there's probably another one less than a mile away or a mile away. Are you the cheapest one? Cool. What happens when the other guy lowers their price? You lower yours, okay. Now you're making $12,000 a year. You know, you're in trouble. You can't cover your costs. So you have to have something else. That's why we have stuff like goat yoga. Like, okay, maybe it's therapeutic, but really someone was like, how can I make this even more unique of an experience to get people interested in it? And so you want to be like the goat yoga of whatever niche you are, but you also have to be good at it. You can't just be a guy who has a bunch of goats and he's like, I can touch my toes, goat yoga, you know, like that doesn't work. You also have to have skills. So you want to kind of skill stack. You want to realize getting into the top 1% of something, it's going to be really tough. Getting into the top 10% of something far easier, getting into the top 10% of three things tough, but not nearly as tough as being in the top 1% of one thing or of two things. So get into the top 10% of like two, three, whatever different things that Venn diagram overlap is your niche. That's your sweet spot where it's like, you know how to create and promote a podcast. Great. But you're also a really good interviewer because those two things are not the same. I know a lot of marketers that have podcasts, they send out to millions of people and they're like, yep, I've got X number of listeners and they never get any real traction because it's not a good show. It's not a good listener experience. So let's say you can create a good listener experience And you can do the technology and the marketing part, but now you're also really, really learned in psychology or motive, whatever sort of niche you have. Great. Now there's only a handful of people there, but then you add something else in there, like another niche that you're really good at, like robotics. So you're talking about psychology and robotics, but you're a podcaster doing it. And you're also able to carry the tune, if you will. There's nobody really doing that. Or there's one other or two other people doing that, and now you're basically playing a who's a more personable host game, right, which is fine. You know, if you have a good personality, you should leverage that too. And if you don't, then podcasting might not really be the venue for you you know,
1: fair enough. Fair enough. And I really like this where you can basically find things that are really laser focused. But what if I have a fear in the back of my head saying like, okay, I do have an interest in, you know, psychology and robotics, but I don't think if I get too specific, nobody will want to listen to me. Should I be looking up any kind of metric? Should I even care about that? Or should I start?
0: I would say, don't worry about it because you should never, especially with podcasting, you shouldn't be thinking this is a business because that's like going to Hollywood and going, oh, I'm going to be a professional actor. Oh, you might be, but you might also be folding towels at the gym at the same time to pay all of your bills. Like, you don't get to decide that you're going to be successful in a media or creator space. Just like, I mean, if I'm making custom, let's say I'm sewing amazing dresses, they might be really nice, but that doesn't mean you can do it professionally. It just doesn't. Like, you're never entitled to that career. That's how it is with any creative endeavor. You know, if you get an accounting degree and you go work in an accounting firm, you are entitled to a paycheck. If you are making dresses in your living room, you are not entitled to any paycheck unless you are selling those to a store or something like that, right? And they're buying them, great. But probably that's not the case. So podcasting is the same thing. You can start a show, but it's a hobby, period. And you should do something that you're interested in because it's a hobby and you have to enjoy it and you're gonna be marketing it. Eventually, it might turn into a side hustle where most podcasts top out, not where most of them are. Most of them never do anything. Most of them top out at side hustle, where it's like, oh, I made like a hundred bucks this month for my show. That's above average. Most shows make zero. So nobody should come into this thinking, I'm eventually going to replace my income with a podcast revenue. It's the same thing like YouTube, where people start YouTube and they're like, Oh, it'd be so cool to make a living off of this. But if you're even remotely realistic, you kind of go, But that's probably 10 years down the line if it ever happens. Mm -hmm. And that's 10 years of consistency. Most people don't have the ability to do that. One, because they don't have the ability to stick with something for 10 years, anyways, but also because then you're doing your job and it gets busy at work. So you put the channel aside for a while and you come back three months later. But what happened during those three months? The algorithm dumped you. Google has no love for you. Your other videos stopped getting played. Your channel stopped getting discovered. Everybody you were competing with kept going. So, you know, this is a hobby for Mm. 99.99% of the people that do it and probably even a higher amount. There are 2 million plus podcasts. The top 1% have 37,000 downloads or more per episode, I would say that is probably not a full-time living. Mm. So if you're in the top 1% of all podcasts in terms of downloads, you're probably still working at whatever job you have. That's not a good look. And I think YouTube is about the same. I don't know how many impressions you get. You need to be at top 1% of YouTube, but I doubt you can make a living being in the top 1% of YouTube. Probably 0.1%, you do okay. 0.01%. Now you're making money, you know, and point zero zero one percent. You got the Lambo and you're driving around, you know, with all the influencers.
1: Let's be clear, that's a category of its own that we could probably open up a can of worms of how sure. real or not real that is. Sure. As well.
0: You're they're renting Lambos and you're the sucker that bought one with your YouTube money, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Hey everybody that listens to Superhumans at Work, know that all of these episodes are recorded with a live studio audience. Mind Valley members get a chance to join these sessions with the author themselves while we record these sessions and at the end of every show, they actually get to participate in a Q&A session as well. If ever you're interested in joining Mindvalley All Access and become a member yourself, you'll get access to all the incredible courses from Mindvalley and so much more to be involved with Superhumans at Work, the Mindvalley podcast, and all the other incredible features when you become a member. We are disrupting the way that education works for the 21st century, and we want you to be a part of it. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman so you can learn more about this incredible offer, which will cost you less than $2 a day. That's mindvalley.com I love your realist approach to this, Jordan, because it's great for people to be aspirational, but it's also bad for people to be delusional. And, you know, I look at this, whether it's podcasting, I look at this, whether you're doing an online program, you're writing a book, it's any of these endeavors have these margins where it actually takes a lot to be at the top and all of it is funneled towards the top. So it's setting the right expectations. But at the same time, there is a skill that I'd want to develop. I want to be able to interview better. I want to be able to ask more powerful questions. Heck, I want to be able to maybe develop my personality so people that do listen to my interview shows Well, don't think I'm boring. The guest doesn't think I ask terrible questions, which maybe brings me to the beginning of your career. Had you had a time when you started and you were like, oh man, you, you weren't able to find the right questions there. The interviews didn't go as smoothly. And how did you find yourself getting better in the process?
0: Yeah, definitely. Of course I didn't start off being good at interviewing and I certainly wasn't going to win any awards when I first started. The thing was I was always loud right? Not like obnoxiously so, although that's debatable. I was always loud enough to get good mic technique. I wasn't a mumbler. I have opinions that are strong, as you can tell. So that's good in a broadcast journalist, right? I also am able to think quickly on my feet, which I developed over a few more years I did the show on Sirius XM satellite radio for three and a half, four years. So I was getting live callers. You know, you're doing a live radio show. You've got co-hosts, you've got a guest in there. So I'm controlling three or four people talking. I've got a producer. He's like, Jim online too. And Jim online too is like, here's this crazy thing that happened. And I can't be like, Whoa, man, let me think about that. That's wild. You know, I'm on live radio all over the U.S. and Canada in via satellite. Like, you can't pause. You can't have dead air. You can't think about it. Got really good at thinking on my feet that helped. And then I took improv and that's the kind of thing that also can help you think on your feet. So I kind of recommend taking like improv one, improv two, whatever, you know, list a, B, I can't remember what they are, but like, Those help. You associate, you free associate, things like that. Over time, you get better at holding conversations. I will watch conversations with other people and I will sort of think like, you know, I'll have the conversation with them in my head while the other journalist just nods and smiles half the time because they don't want to be there. Or you watch a really good journalist do it and they'll stop the person. You know, unfortunately on TV, there's a lot of editing, so you're not really sure what's going on. Half the time, the 15 minute piece you're watching took three hours to record. So the journalist looks really awesome, which is fine. Cause that's the bar you're comparing yourself to. It's a good way to get good fast. Oh, I'm never going to be as good on my feet as this guy. Okay. You realize that was six hours of tape compressed into 30 minutes, right? Oh, okay. You know, the, that helps. Obviously practice makes perfect improv helps getting out of your comfort zone by doing things that are really a stretch, like. If you want to get really good at thinking on your feet, live radio helps. Probably don't have that opportunity. So take improv, do fireside chats where you're on stage interviewing somebody in front of 500 people. You'll prepare and you'll get better at what you are doing over time. And you'll be like, okay, I can do this. You know, and you'll build confidence in that area. The trick though is honestly, tons of prep. I don't really think there's a such thing as being overprepared. There's the inability to let go of your notes in real time when you're doing an interview, but there's no such thing as overprepared. Like if I have 10 pages of notes, I know I'm going to get through four of them. Cool. I should have done before I did the interview. I took those 10 pages of notes by reading 20 hours of book, whatever, before the interview, half hour, hour before I'm highlighting the things I want to make sure that I hit I'm crossing out things that I threw in there that I'm like, "Yeah, it's not as exciting," you know. So now I have kind of a more of a working document that's maybe more like six pages of good stuff, seven pages of good stuff. And then as the interview is going, there's certain things that we kind of touched on. I don't really need to go there anymore. There's other things the moment has passed. I don't really want to go back to it. There's other things that now that I think about it are more important, so I want to go and hit that. You know, that's a practiced skill. But you can't do that if you don't have, you can't highlight anything if you don't have a prep doc in front of you. So there's a lot of people that I think, they'll make an excuse, like I don't have time to prepare as much. I can't read the whole book. And I get that. I've heard journalists say that, like professional journalists be like, I don't have time to read this whole book. Good, but I understand that you don't. That means you don't have time to be good at this. You don't have time to be the best at this, certainly. Imagine going to, a sports game and somebody just can't hit the basket at an NBA game. And the interviewer on ESPN's like, what happened out there? Oh man, I didn't hit any of my shots. Why are you off today? Well, no, I never practiced those. Why don't you practice your shots? I've spent a lot of time running and you know, I'm just so tired after that. So I don't really, I just don't do free throws or any three pointers. I just don't have time. Wait, what, what, first of all, that would never happen because the person would never even be on a high school basketball team, let alone in the NBA. And yet we get interviewers in podcasting and frankly, in professional journalism all the time who are like, read the whole book. Why? I only have 30 minutes. I'm never going to go through everything. Well, we know you're never going to go through everything, but now you can't even go through the best stuff because you don't even know what the person has to offer. So now you're just going for low hanging fruit. That's why we see, Let's say you get a famous psychologist going on a lot of shows or a celebrity. If you watch 20 of those interviews, they're all the same. Why? Because the publicist sent out a sheet that was like, now is a great time in Matthew McConaughey's life to write this book because he's really going through a lot of changes. So 90 out of 100 interviewers go, why was now a great time for you to write Green Lights? oh, well, okay. I didn't use that question. Why? Because it was in the sheet and everyone was going to ask it. So now 90% of people are asking the same 10 questions in the time that they have with Matthew McConaughey. I was like, I'm going to read the book, but I'm probably going to use like one or two things from it. Everything else I'm doing is going to be from like an interview that guy did in 2004. I'm going to be like, do you change your mind since then? Wow. Oh yeah. I rewatched this movie where you had your first role, not the one that everyone thinks was your first role, but the actual first role. What was that all about? And then it's like, you get all of these tidbits and everyone goes, wow, it was a really different interview with Matthew McConaughey. And I go, well, yeah, the bar was actually really low because all people did was read the media sheet, watch him on Ellen or whatever. And then they go like, ah, I have enough. I'm done. You know, nobody did the work. And so you can really just outwork people in that space, as long as the other pieces are in place. Just like a comedian who's hilarious and really, really, really good on their feet, they can outperform me on a podcast, but I'm gonna have a better interview. They're gonna have a funnier interview and they might never have to even know, they don't even have to know who the person is that's in front of them, but if you're not looking for comedy, they're in deep trouble, right? They're in trouble. So they can only do that very narrow thing. On the other hand, if you are, okay and sort of funny, kind of maybe, and you're a good interviewer. Well, now you've got another little circle to drop into that Venn diagram, right? I don't try to be funny. I throw in some humor and some personality, but I don't try to pretend that I'm the next, you know, Theo Vaughn or whatever. But if you throw a little bit of that in there, people will get that from you. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who are better at interviewing in psychology because they're like PhDs in the space, but they are not as entertaining, So you wanna get to that. That's a perfect example of getting to like the 90th percentile in a few different areas, right? That PhD is in the 99th, 100th percentile of psychology knowledge. And he's a really good podcaster because he knows how to do all the microphone audio stuff. And he's been doing it for years, but he's just not that entertaining. So people will go, you know, I used to listen to him a lot, but I saw you had the same person on. I don't listen to yours. That's what I want, right? That's how I get listeners in the first place, retain listeners over a decade and change. Like that's what you really want and this is a good time to admit that i'm not 100 sure what your original question was because i've been rambling but you get to stop me now and ask me something else <laughs>
1: i will stop you right there but i'll just first acknowledge that that was very powerful it really was actually about your journey about how you became best into your interviewing skills and i think you answered it perfectly a lot of it's in the preparation you go the extra mile and if you look at any professional sports athlete you made the perfect example. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm too busy to go and practice. No, like you look at the Jordans, you look at the Kobe's like they're relentless. They practice, they need to be at the top of their game. What you are giving at least as an opening as well is that, yeah, you can be at the top one or like zero, 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 one percent, but instead you actually become the point zero, 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 one percent. If you become top 10 in multiple different dynamics, interviewing skills being one of them that we can practice. And you know, how much percentage would you distribute it? Like Your preparation is amazing. It seems like the most important thing. To what percentage do you honor a great interviewer to his preparation?
0: You know, it's really tough because you build skill really slowly in Mm -hmm. terms of like thinking on your feet, knowing how to react in the moment to a, a question. So a lot of people will prep and then they'll be really stuck to their question list. Here's a good example that I, this is such an old example. I still need to remember who this person was, but I was reading a book about infectious diseases a long time ago, as one does. Fascinating. But this is pre-pandemic. But the doctor, she was African-American, but the dedication to the book was to my adopted parents, something, something. And I was like, oh, okay. So she's adopted. And then I researched that. And it turns out she was adopted from Africa, now lives in somewhere in the West. Okay. And so I asked her, did you become an infectious disease specialist? Maybe in part because the place where you were originally from just had very little access to medicine and such a mortality. And she goes, that's funny. No one's ever asked me that. Yes, I was adopted from Gabon or whatever. And it is just not people don't have access to fresh water. And I thought, wow, I basically got plucked out of here. This is like divine intervention. I need to learn a skill that can, I can then bring back here and help other people who would like, but for the grace of God, go I. And I was like, oh, so you're religious. She's like, well, not really, but I know. that. So that, and she goes, no one's ever asked me that. And I go, that's funny. It's on the second page of your book that everyone skips, you know, because, oh, the dedication, who cares? Next. No, that's where the good prep is. I do think there's some element of like care and prep that goes into that and knowing how to seize on that moment when the person says something that reminds you of something that's in your notes. Like that's a practice skill, but you kind of have to at least show up prepared. And I think a lot of people just don't do that, which is not super surprising because I used to be that way too, right? It's like I used to be the guy who just thought I'm just going to study 15 minutes for the test. What if you knew the information the night before, right? Like it would be so much easier for you. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. It's like, if I come in well-prepared, that's just one other burden I don't have to lift. So then I can focus on being in the moment and being spontaneous because I have notes. Actually, a lot of journalists, they'll go, oh, I don't want too detailed of notes because it takes me out of the moment. And I go, well, that just means you're a freaking amateur. You know, if you can't take your notes and put them aside and just think about what's in there, That's a you problem. The notes aren't actually distracting you. You're just distracted by the notes because you can't operate without them. The solution to not being able to operate without your notes is not to never make the freaking notes, right? The way you do that is to memorize the notes. If you're an actor... You don't go, look, I'm never going to read the script because then I won't be able to do any improv. No, the way you do that is you memorize the script and you know it so well that then you can improvise. You don't just show up not knowing that your character only speaks Spanish or whatever, right? Like you can't just wing it. That's an amateur move. And that's funny because that is a Matthew McConaughey thing. One of his roles, he was like, I'm so good at this. I don't even need to read the script. He showed up and he had like a page long, monologue in Spanish. And he was like, I'll see myself out. Cause obviously they fired him. I mean, he couldn't do it.
1: So I love doing public speaking. Right. And I've noticed that there's kind of this curve to excellence. And for me, it's like, if I go and do a talk, let's say someone says, go and talk about this topic. Mm-hmm. I have zero preparation. I can pull off a really good talk. at would like maybe a 75%. Okay. Maybe right. I'm being a little too self-centered. Let's call it a 60%, right? Sure. And because there's that intuitive, that improv, that kind of magic that happens when you're just on your feet, but that's not what is required to be the best. And I think that there's this moment that I realized that when I decide to design a talk and prepare and practice, when I do the talk, like a second, third, even like fourth time in preparation, it sounds a little more robotic. It looks a little less or a little too polished, right? Because it's very structured, but it's only after I've practiced it maybe like four to five times that that spontaneity comes back because it's like you start having a script and you start having like structure, but then to be more fluent with that structure, it just demands practice. And then you kind of get back to being amazing. You have a lot better content, a lot less ums, a lot less winging it, but there's a patience required, right? And I think this is what I love the most about what you're saying is that, hey, you want to be the best? And there's patience required, there's work required, and when you put in that work, it pays off dividends, and you start actually operating at a level that is much better than what other person can pull off a of 65%. You want to be in the top 10%, it takes more work,
0: exactly. Yeah, the famous talk show host, Howard Stern, love him or hate him. One thing that I noticed because I worked at Sirius XM at the same time as him, one thing I noticed is brand new hosts would come in and they'd have all these notes and they'd be kind of frazzled and they would be like, Oh God, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then over time they'd get used to everything. And they're like, ah, I don't need these anymore. Like I'm good. I'm pretty good at this. They'll come in and they'll do like a pretty good job, right? They're kind of funny. They're kind of on it. They Googled you before, but that's kind of it. They read your Wikipedia. Like they're like, ah, I can handle this. Howard Stern, Kind of not debatable. One of the best interviewers in the world, one of the best talk show hosts in the world, certainly the highest paid. I mean, by all accounts, globally, period. So economically, he's won the award of the best, right? I think we can sort of say that. I don't care for his humor so much, but my opinion doesn't matter. You know, he's making $500 million from Sirius doing his show. So one thing I noticed about him is he will prepare like a madman. And everyone goes like, wait, why? I mean, he's Howard Stern, like delegate that to your people. And he's like, well, okay, I'm going to make sure that my team watches the movie and reads the book. But like, I have to do that too. So I thought that was really interesting because in the beginning you get all these people preparing that are brand new. And then like six months, a year in, they're like, I got this. Their level of prep goes way down. But as you get towards master level, the masters are the people that go, oh, So prep is not optional. It's actually what I need to be doing to be the best because you can do a B minus C plus job that other people will go, wow, this is so good because you've been doing it for 10 or 20 years. So they think that you're good, but you know that you're not as good as you could be, right? And so you do have to continually go back to the basic fundamentals and the skill set. And I remember this moment where, this is years ago. It's like 10 years ago now, where my now wife at the time, my girlfriend was like, man, that interview was so much better than your other ones. And the author of the book was like, this is really good. I've done a lot of media and this is one of the best ones. And I was like, wow, this famous author thinks I'm good at this. And then I go, I told my wife, I go, but I just, I can't keep operating at that level. She goes, well, why not? And I go, I, I mean, I'd have to read the book. Like I read his book, you know, that's why it was better. And she goes, well, I mean, I guess you could read the book for everyone. And I go, no, it's impossible. And she goes, is it impossible? And I was like, you're right. It's possible. I just don't want to, because it's going to take so much more time. And she goes, I mean, if you want to be the best, you kind of have to operate at this level all the time. I mean, you know that you can do it. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So after that point, I was like, all right, I've got to read the book for everything. And so I started to delegate other things to other people on the team that I just like didn't have time for. And I started to realize like, I'm not good at reading paper. So I have to get audio books. And then I was like, oh, these are too slow. So I had to get apps that sped them up because those didn't exist yet. So, you know, now I've got other apps that like cut out the silence and they speed this up. And then I drop this file in there. So I've got my whole sort of hack system process where I can read things really, really fast. And I'm very practiced at reading at 3X or whatever. But- That took a lot of time. So that alone was like another skill. It's like, I felt like I'm a tennis player that went, man, if I just hit the ball myself and it bounces off that board and comes back slow, I'm not going to get that good at this. So they built a freaking tennis ball machine, right? And they're like, bam, 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 bam. And I'm like, this is what I needed. I needed to build the tennis ball machine. And I also needed to realize that I couldn't just sort of like leisurely hit the ball against the garage. I needed to really practice. And that is what made me better fast because I stopped freaking lying to myself, you know, <laughs> basically.
1: Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this wisdom. I think it's been a breath of fresh air. I think it's been a reality check. I think it's been some insightful ideas that people can really pay attention to, which takes from the work ethic that we were speaking about earlier is Well, first off, if you're going to be going into the space of podcasting, you're going to be interviewing people and you're listening to this, know that it is a highly competitive space. Let's have a bit of that cold water being thrown on us. You're going to be dealing with a lot of people, over 2 million podcasts here. So what are the ways you can differentiate yourself? I love that this was the beginning of our conversation here, Mm -hmm. Jordan, where it's like, hey, if you look at these different things, you can be an expert at, you know, going into the niches. I know we talked a bit about how this makes it more specific. But you really want to make sure that you have something that is a hobby that you enjoy to start with because the likelihood of this being a money maker is very low. But you can definitely find yourself nurturing one of the skills that is very important if you're going to be doing interviewing, which is being a better interviewer. We spent a lot of this episode continuously beating the drum on what is one of the most important things to do. Which is your preparation so if you get to do your preparation you can do it at a baby level or you can do it at a master level and you can see that if you're looking to make that skill something that you really want to bring in your back pocket and i've noticed for myself like even if it's not within an interview if i'm having conversations with people i find myself just being more interested in people being more present being more attentive which just makes you a better person in a conversation which i know translates so well within the workplace as well it's a beautiful skill to master preparation. You want to go for an interview. What do you do before the interview? You prepare, you research the company more than 99% of the people do. And of course you're not going to be reading that sheet, like a spec sheet where you need to go line by line, but it's in that preparation that you will find this quote unquote intuition that makes Mm you ask questions because you've encountered that information before. If you haven't, Subscribe to the Jordan Harbinger show yet? I highly encourage you to look into the show notes and go and see the level of expertise that he does all of his interviews. It is one of the few shows that I love to tune into because he does his interviews so fantastically and brings amazing guests in the process. And as I've mentioned at the beginning, this is our second time having Jordan on the show. If you're looking to find guests, you're looking to network with people, go and look at the first interview that we did where we went deeper into the concepts of networking. You are going to learn a ton there. Again, Jordan, thank you so much for your time. It's amazing to see you. Your craft, I'm inspired to step up my game listening to you. And I know for everybody here wants to do the same. So thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it.